You're listening to Founders on Air with Steve Orenstein and Mike Rosenbaum. This podcast is sponsored by Zoom to You, Australia's on-demand courier marketplace. Get your parcels delivered within hours rather than days. Today we have with us David Leslie, the Investment Director of Elliston Ventures. Welcome to the program, David. Thanks, Steve. So David has 23 years experience in technology and investment markets as a researcher, an analyst and an investor. So Elliston Ventures has raised about $150 million over the last 10 years. So we're very lucky to have someone like David on the show. So thanks so much for joining us and taking out the time. No worries. So why don't you start telling us a little bit about Elliston Ventures and sort of how it got started and what you guys do. Okay, so Elliston Ventures, Elliston is a, is a broader business manages predominantly public equities. So the day job at Elliston is Australian equities, international equities, big cap, small cap. And then around 10 years ago, as part of the general investment team, I began to focus on private and unlisted investment opportunities. So effectively, the ventures business was given birth to back in 2010 when we invested in Mike's business, was one of the first deals that we did, Deals Direct. So since we started investing in unlisted companies. We've gone through iterations of doing bespoke one-off transactions and then we moved into a venture capital fund and now we've got a, a new fund, a growth fund called Jade, which is sort of later stage expansion capital. Excellent. And what are the types of people that make up the, the business? So across Elliston, we've got experts in a whole range of different markets. We have investors who specialise in you know, industrial businesses, healthcare, we have others who specialise in financials and resources. Within the ventures team specifically, we have a broad investment background around technology companies, but complementing us is also our operating partners. So unlike listed investments where, you know, if you change your mind, don't like it, you sell it. Once you're involved in unlisted companies, obviously, you know, we like to bring resources to bear. So our partners are former executives from, you know, a variety of companies. Anthony Clock used to be the CEO at Betfair. Jamie O'Dell, Tony Casanos were senior executives at Aristocrat. We've also got one of the former founders from Seek, Matt Rockman, Kyle Jackson founded also. So we bring these people in and they come into our, our, our sort of fund as investors in some cases and then they also help us out with our investments by providing some operating experience and mentoring the management teams. Yeah, excellent. And wh- where do you raise your money from? So what sort of types of investors and what sort of checks are they writing? Okay. So we have a very a wide uh, sort of pool of investors. So rather than getting our money from institutions, it's from individuals. Mostly those individuals participate through their financial planners. So the Jade Fund predominantly has raised money through financial planning networks. And our fund actually has been rated by independent research houses and is able to sit on platforms such as BT and, and a variety of the traditional funds management platforms that you know, people choose to make their allocations of their uh, of their wealth. So one of the things that we've been able to do that's a little bit different from many of the other unlisted funds out there is to be able to create a structure in an open way that has that's an open-ended unit trust. So it basically provides access for retail investors. So we have a PDS. So you know, you don't have to be a, a wholesale or sophisticated investor to invest in our funds. Rather, you can apply directly. And yeah, and so there's, you know, I think the minimum investment size is $25,000. Yeah, so right. it's not just for rich people, endowments or institutions, it's actually a more widely available investment vehicle. Yeah, excellent. And, and so how did you get started in, uh, at Elliston and in, in the VC world in, in investments? So my first sort of out of university where I'd studied finance, my first job was working for a, a multinational IT company, EDS. 
And so I did. I worked there as a financial analyst for five years, learned a lot. Then my career progressed. I ended up in, in stockbroking. I worked for Deutsche Bank for five years where I was covering technology and a range of listed companies. That then evolved into a funds management analyst position at, at Elliston slash CPH, Consolidated Press, back around 2005. And so my journey has sort of been back to where I began. So having done sort of general investments and focused on listed companies and you know I spent a couple of years overseas and whatnot, as I came back to Australia in sort of 20, 2009, increasingly my focus was around technology businesses, which is where I'd started out. And then eventually I just saw more opportunities in the unlisted sector. So together with the people I worked with, we sort of built out our capability around those unlisted investments. So David, how many ventures or, or businesses have you invested in to date since 2010? So through the club investment deals, we did uh, about half a dozen of those. Then we did the fund, which was another half a dozen. We've made three investments so far in the Jade Fund, and I've made a couple of other small investments you know, in my you know, own right. Mostly everything I've done has been through our Elliston vehicles, but I've probably been a part of 15-odd investments. So by some standards, that's not a huge number in terms of venture capital land. We're probably a little bit more concentrated in our approach. And what's the typical check size that you guys will write? Yep. So w- when we started out doing the club deals back in sort of 2010, we were doing three, four, five million dollars a transaction, and and that continued to sort of be the model really up until we did the Jade Fund. With the new fund that we're investing in, we feel there's a greater opportunity and a slightly better risk reward profile of later stage companies. So. We're now seeking to write, you know, 15 to $30 million checks. So we're looking for businesses with more revenue, so $10 million in annual revenue. You know, we were I investors in Tyro, and so that's a company that's now valued on the ASX at nearly $2 billion. So we like the growth of the technology businesses at a very early stage for us. It takes a lot of work. We have a very detailed process. We think there's a lot of scalability to what we actually do as investors, so and we find the risk reward of later stage businesses works well for us and our clients. Makes sense. And so, what's the worst investment you've made to date, and what were the sort of key learnings from that? Yeah, probably you know without wanting to name and shame, you know I've certainly had a few that didn't work out ideally to plan, but the one that probably taught me the most lessons was was more around a business that was a concept. So. It was a really interesting business, you know, around the world of sort of financial services, and it was trying to disrupt a very large and a very highly lucrative market within financial services. They had a, a working, functioning technology product and platform, but the volume of capital that we needed to use to generate real revenues, and when we were relying also on large financial services partners to work with us, it became very fraught about how long it would take, the regulatory requirements. So lessons learned, you know, how long it takes big companies to move, the impact of dealing in highly regulated markets. You can never underestimate how hard and expensive that can be to navigate. And then ultimately, when you've got a new business and you're trying to acquire customers, you can't underestimate how much money you're going to need to spend on customer acquisition unless you've got a sort of proven channel. So whilst I think the idea is great and noble, it's still sort of sitting there and and, and looking to be properly commercialised. Thanks for sharing so openly. I think I can pick number two. What's been the best investment so far and and why? So investments, you know, you you like investments for different things. So we've been recently uh, investors in Tyro, 
which listed six months later and for anyone who's looked at the you know the action since the IPO the price has gone up a lot so we've made a very high return in a very quick period of time and it's fantastic it's a great business really well run and terrific but I think part of what we're also looking for is businesses that can keep growing and so if I was to say the business that's shown the greatest propensity to have a long duration of growth it's probably Mabel our home care business so this is a business that we invested in over three years ago and Mabel when we first met the business you know was was very nascent it was connecting so what it does first of all is it connects people in the home care space so think if you've got a client who has money and they're looking for services for uh, someone with a disability or in the aged care sector or maybe they just need some respite and home care so there's a marketplace for people looking for care and carers who provide services so you've got all these independent contractors who might be there to provide some basic home care needs transport logistics not so much, sorry, the transport, but more, more home care and, and, and personal care in the, in, the, in the home environment. This business started out at doing, when we invested in it, you know, less than $100,000 a week of turnover. The nature of how this business works is it's solving a very large market and the market's continuing to evolve and form. So people are transitioning from traditional agency models and government services to being able to buy their own services. And this is a business that, you know, three years later, it's still growing at around 10% month over month. So what makes this particularly attractive and, and, and compelling as an investment is it's a very large addressable market, the ability to retain clients and have relatively low churn and then to grow value with that client over time. So we see tremendous lifetime values and a business that has the potential to scale to a very large size. Yeah, excellent. And with Tyro, sort of what, what, did you, what makes you think or what was the reason as to why the share price has grown so so much over the last little while since it's listed. So in Tyro, I think you've, you've got a business that behind the big four banks is the largest um, payment processor in Australia. So it's got a strong market position. This is a, a well-established, you know, we all do tap and pay. You know, it's it's got very strong tailwinds in terms of the industry dynamics and trends. Why investors are really excited is the payments business is interesting and payments are going to continue to evolve and they've got a great platform and, and great client base to build on. But the fact that they've got a banking license and they're able to offer some lending services to these small businesses that are being so poorly serviced by the traditional big four banks, I think people can see... You know, again, investors get excited where they can see very long duration growth profiles. If, it, if a business can prove even at, you know, with a couple of hundred million dollars of revenue like Tyro, that it can continue to grow at 30% a year for many years to come, it's that long duration of growth that investors value. Yeah, makes sense, makes sense. And so when a founder comes to meet, meet you, what do you like about what do you look for in that founder and what don't you like? So when you're only going to do two or three deals a year, you've got to be able to get on with people. There's got to be a high degree of honesty and integrity. Um, you've got to be able to comfortably communicate with them and you've got to be comfortable that they're going to be able to you know, take your advice and when you challenge them, they're not going to be offended or um, discouraged, but you can have a constructive relationship. It's really important and, you know, in some cases it's great where there's two founders. In other cases, you know, you're looking for a strong individual founder. There's no cookie cutter or recipe. I, I can say that of all of the investments we've done, they always come through some warm introduction. So it's usually important that you're meeting someone not for the first time when they're coming in and asking you to invest in their business, but that there's sort of a little bit of a, 
a warm introduction that helps bridge the gap a little bit of the history to, to establish some of that trust and confidence and that when they come in to see you you know like I meet a lot of really bright young entrepreneurs who impress me but you can't and no one does I think we you know the world everyone's sort of graduated from thinking it's you go and have a meeting and someone's going to write a check but it takes time you know and and I think you know being very you've got to meet a lot of people when you're raising money investors we meet a lot of people to sort of understand the mosaic of what's happening out there in businesses and what but you're looking for that chemistry that trust obviously the business plan and the data ultimately informs us whether or not you know if the data is not there if there's not enough revenue to meet our requirements or there's too much risk in the business then we're not going to invest but we all have to sit there as an investment team and we all have to agree that we want to work with that person and feel comfortable with them so that's it's fundamentally about trust This podcast is sponsored by Parkhound, Australia's parking marketplace, to find a convenient parking space near your home or office. Yeah, excellent. And have you got an example of where you haven't invested because of the way in which the the founder conducted themselves or something that you didn't really like? By the time we get to the point of making an investment decision, you know, it often takes three to six months. And so you rarely get to the end. And I haven't got to the end and said, you know what, I just can't work with this person. There have been, usually you figure out early on if, you know, are they excessively optimistic and unrealistic and not willing to take a more balanced view on their own business. We've invested in in young founders. We've invested in, you know, CAMS, which is a company we just invested, invested at, an Adelaide-based company. Young Joe's 61 years old and, you know, we've put money into his company. So we've, we've got an open mind about what, you know, what they sort of look like, you know, we've invested with husband and wives out of, you know, Intellidox in Canberra. So there's there's all sorts of models out there. We try not to be prescriptive, but we haven't got to the end. We, we usually know earlier on whether or not they're going to fit the mould for us. What's that one investment that you wish you didn't pass on? Uh, well, there's obviously many. Huffman can- Spacer. <laughs> <laughs> well called, Mike. Uh, there's, there's obviously many investments that, that we've looked at over the years you know, we, we spend a lot of time worrying about the ones that we do. So I'm more concerned by making a mistake with the ones that I put money into. I try not to look back and have too many regrets. I think everyone who's not participated in the afterpay story would sort of, you know, share my pain. We saw it as a, a pre-IPO deal. One of your old mates, Paul Greenberg, might have been the first pe- person who ever mentioned to me that it was an opportunity. So, and, and you know, I, I struggled back in those early days to think that that lay-by model could work for what was basically an online business when it was first pitched. Little did I know it would have such a global impact. So, yeah. But there's, that's probably the most profound one. And what's your view on the economy today, both in Australia and, and globally? Yeah, I, I think with an investor hat on, I think it's a difficult one. You know, it's hard. You have to be, you have to be somewhat cautious. We're, we're in unprecedented times in terms of low interest rates. We haven't had a recession in Australia for a long time, but we've got interest rates at a point where that lever no longer exists. So I think what that does is it puts a lot of pressure on us as investors and and also entrepreneurs and business builders because there's a lot of rewards for finding growth, whether we're investing or creating growth. I think there's a lot of opportunity. I'm, I'm genuinely optimistic that, you know, when we look at the businesses that we're investing in and sometimes the prices we see test some of our sensibilities, but if we can find a business that has, and we've said it a couple of times, I've said it a couple of times, that real potential to grow for very long periods of time, then if we get the time, if we get the valuation wrong a little bit, 
that's forgivable. But finding businesses that can grow in difficult economic environments with low interest rates, the rewards are going to be material for investors. So, yeah, I, I you know, I, th- I think if I look at the the changes happening in the economy, I think low interest rates obviously dictate a lot of investment outcomes and returns. I think technology will continue to be powerful and very large markets such as financial services will continue to be tipped on their head. It changes everything we do, everything we consume. You know, so I've, I, I, it's hard to be it's hard to be overly bearish. I think it's more a bearishness around traditional businesses that don't work hard to improve themselves. But from a, a genu- from a, a macroeconomic, notwithstanding what happens in the US and China, which is way above my pay grade, I think domestically we're in an environment where capital is going to continue to go into businesses that are trying to drive growth, innovation, disruption. So we've talked quite a lot about larger scale businesses today and it's really interesting to hear your sort of um, investment thesis and how it's changed over time I suppose and you've often given me some great advice over the years so what what sort of advice would you give to founders that are thinking of starting a business today how should they think about the world and and you know what they're about to start so I think it's really important that when when you find a problem that so it's all about solving problems I think so you want you want to find big problems not little problems. You want to find problems where people are going to be willing to pay for the service ultimately. So, you know, existing markets, large ideas, I think you're going to find that you get a lot more investor support. doesn't mean that you can't, you know, the, the, the most inspirational founders in the world will create value where I can't see it. Maybe that's where Afterpay. You know, I couldn't, even though there were some large markets in the background, I couldn't see how they were going to get there. So I think... My advice to founders would very much be on, 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 you've got to have big ideas, you've got to have ideas that, that don't, you know, some of the best founders in the world are deeply technical and I think you have to have a strong technical capability or be able to at least translate and work with technical people but, but there has to be a commercial lens to what you do. So I think founders have to be all-rounders. I mean, you know, if I was, if I was creative and capable enough, I'd love to to, to build a business from scratch and, and be very successful, but you know, I think it takes a special resilience. You know, the, the all the, the great expressions, the failing fast and whatnot. I think you've got to be prepared to make plenty of mistakes, get a few bloody noses. But I think you know, if I could give them one piece of advice, it really would be about solving big problems that are going to make a difference because you'll get a lot more support along the way. And you mentioned mistakes. So, what are some of the classic mistakes that you've seen founders make being an investor? So. The main mistake I see sort of repeatedly is people coming in and, you know, Australian entrepreneurs, business people tend to try to sell you and tell you too much. They try to give you way too much information. I think the biggest mistake that people make is they try to overwhelm you with how much they know about something when what we're actually looking for is clear ideas, clarity. Don't overwhelm me with how smart you are overwhelm me that you've got a clear idea that you're able to execute on and that that's going to be the focus of what you do. Bright, shiny things, you know, kind of burnt a lot of businesses. So I think we're looking, you know, you're looking for people with focus, not with 15, not with sort of 50 page decks and, and, and lots of information, but you've got to know, you've got to know your numbers, right? You've got to know your market, you've got to know your product, product market fit. And you know it, it's going to be the, the it's going to be the three or four clear ideas that I get out of that meeting that are going to really inform whether we're interested in getting involved. Yeah, it makes sense. And 
What advice would you give to someone who's looking to reach out to you um, and, and get Elliston Ventures to invest? I, I think you can always try the front door. You can always try and send the email in and, and, and you know, that's great. We, we look at those. You know, we, we've got a... We, we've been logging information for a long time so we do we do take it on board and if it does fit into our wheelhouse of the sort of things we're looking for we, yeah we'll happily take the meeting but if you get the warm introduction i think smart entrepreneurs are smart enough to figure out how to build some good businesses and and have great ideas i think they can figure out you know how to get warm introductions and even if it's not a direct introduction i, I don't mind people reaching out on linkedin I, I accept that all the time i think it's part of being engaged but, but mostly it's, a, um, it's some sort of um, qualification, connection that gives me the confidence that at least the people you're dealing with, you know, there's a level of trust that you start with. Yeah, excellent. And uh, how, do, how do you think about valuations of these startups and what, what do you sort of look at for the, the businesses and the... So, so startups are hard. So, you know, we, we, we do our valuations of revenue, potent, profit potential. You know, we look sort of three to five years out and, and we look at what... Um, revenues a business might be earning. We take a view on what the unit economics are and the profitability is. We have a look at the size of the market. That informs us what the multiple might be on the business. But we try to look three to five years out, but we never, we can't escape where a business is today. And, you know, we do depend on data to inform us whether or not it's going to be, uh, you know, the right one for us. So we're using data in terms of, you know, what are they doing today? What are the metrics around the customers they're acquiring? Um, you know, what's the lifetime value all of those things you'd expect to see um you know when it's at a startup stage and 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 it's a piece of paper and there's no real revenue to speak of it's more of an art than a science and i think you know at that stage you're really relying on the people who are writing checks and it's about finding uh you know i think a, a point where everyone feels the risk and reward meets their expectations yeah right and over the last 10 years have you seen what are you seeing in sort of valuations have they moved a lot or Uh, there's no question that interest rates coming down have driven valuations up so quite simply the discount rate that people use over a range of high growth assets so if you look at some of the valuation approaches to some of the recent ipos you know when i was a sprightly young fellow sort of 20 years ago doing dcf valuations during the first dot-com sort of market you know we were using wax of 12 14 percent people are now using seven percent because if your risk-free rates come down dramatically and that basically, you know, expands the multiple of revenues or earnings or what other capitalization method you want to use. So there's no question that they've gone up, but there's a real economic rationale behind it. But again, you know, we've seen the movie before, so we're always watching carefully to, to sort of work out what might change those valuation paradigms. So for 2020, what do you think the valuations are? Continue? Or? I think we're, we're here. We're stuck, right? Low interest rates. Yeah. So, you know, I don't... I don't think it's going to change dramatically, but it doesn't mean that the appet- the risk appetite for the market, again, you know, risk appetite obviously informs what discount rates you're using. If you think risk a- appetites are high, which I'd say they're reasonably high at the moment, that's great. But if you think that people are nervous that you're going to have, you know, some political, economic, global, you know, risks that can't get factored into the system, when that risk premium goes up, then valuations are coming down. So I'll so have to wait and see. David, thanks for joining us on Sounders on Air today. You've been our first uh, VC. It's um, it's been great to hear the other side of the the story. 
Thanks, Mike. And I, I don't know if we actually talked about it, but for those who don't know, obviously we were shareholders in Deals Direct and we've had an investment in Zoom to you. So I know both of your businesses well and how you run them and um, and I can see with both the businesses you're running now, things are going great. So well done to you guys. Thanks, David. Thanks, David. Um, it's been great having you on the program and um, thanks for sharing those great tips with, with our founder listeners today. Um, that's all for us for 2019. It's been a great start. This is uh, episode 11 and we're looking forward to getting to episode 40 by the end of next year. That's our BHAG. And just to whet your appetite, we've got a couple of great founders um, in January. We've got um, Adam from Humanitics. We've got Tristan from Lift Tango, Adam from The Iconic, and we've got the guys from Snapper. Um, so have a fantastic holiday season. That's all from Founders On Air. You've been listening to Founders On Air with Steve Orenstein and Mike Rosenbaum, a podcast designed for founders by founders to help you scale your business. For show notes and to ask questions for future episodes, go to foundersonair.com. Thanks for listening and don't forget to subscribe. We'll see you next time.